I was walking out to the parking lot so I could quick drive home and make myself a turkey sandwich with tomatoes and pickles because I basically have that every day of my life. Um, well, now I had left my car unattended for about two and a half hours and I get out there and I find that I'm parked in the area up um, in the parking lot that's reserved for driving. Oh, yes. I completely ignore the actual lines of the parking spaces and my stupid, dirty red Toyota Highlander was just popping a squat in the middle of the road. What was I thinking when I parked there right before my 8 a.m.? But my, stu my stupidity doesn't end there. Oh no, in my panic, I quickly figured out I'd probably gotten a ticket um, or a boot placed on my car. So I quickly started her up and tried to move, not even an inch. I called security. My car has a boot on it, yada, yada, yada. And they said they'd be there to remove it in a couple of minutes. As I was waiting, I fidgeted with the controls and then had a horrific revelation. When I pressed the acceleration earlier, I hadn't put the car in drive. And I, like an idiot, assumed there was a boot on my car when it refused to move. Mortified beyond human expression, I zoomed out of my non-parking space, called security in shame, screamed in frustration, and beat myself up. The thing is, I do this type of thing way too often. I'm actually known for it. And every time it happens, I feel like, like nothing, like I can't do anything right. And I, all I ever really want to do is things right. So you know it's hard when I can't do that. Grace, and I like instant oatmeal, modern art, and the 1984 classic film, The NeverEnding Story. I'm Hugo, and I like sports, collecting shoes, and coffee. I'm Caitlin Renschler, and I like kazooing in cars with the windows open, making fun of bad reality TV shows, and Lego Batman. Welcome to the Modern Story Podcast, episode number 10. Today we're telling stories about pressure and performance. So what color is a boot? Just so I know. I actually have no idea. I've never gotten one for real. I actually got one um, freshman year last year when oh, I was no. going to head out for Thanksgiving. It is yellow. Word. <laughs> yeah. Word. <laughs> um, so let's get started um, with Grace and her story called 2001 Dodge Grand Caravan. John has a sweet ride, or had. Older than sin, his sick-ass minivan still haunts my very dreams. It was almost inspiring in its struggle to survive. To begin, you should know, I'm PCA, a personal care attendant, and John is my client, and I often drive in places in that car. So this one Sunday morning, August something, I get to his place around 8. I do all the stuff that I normally do. I walk the dog, I get him up, and I hear the plans for the day. We're meeting his mother near St. Cloud to visit. With that, the journey begins. We start in the scary garage, a no man's land, where I've only ever seen like two people, women in their 60s, and I think they were breaking into a car. But nevertheless, I pull down the accessibility ramp, which squeals like something awful, and then we're ready to jet set. I'm doing like 70 down a two lane highway, and I'm feeling great. This is the second time we've met, John and I, so there's a lot to say, but we don't chat. I focus on driving, and he gets lost in his phone, and eventually we pull up to a dilapidated Culver's parking lot. I meet his mom, they talk, we talk, there's a lot of talking, and then we've got to make it back to the cities. Now, on the drive back, we take the freeways, and once again, I am zooming. We are set to make it back in, like, record time. But then I see this little warning light that kind of looks like a genie lamp from Aladdin. Later, I learn that means it's out of oil or something. 
The engine coughs and sneezes and shudders, and we're so close to home, it's only a couple blocks. Then, obviously, as the story goes, the car just stops moving. Now, we are on a two-lane street in an already busy intersection, but the gag is, we're right outside the Gopher Stadium and it's game day. So we're blocking up this whole right lane with no right shoulder to gracefully glide into. We figure it out. My client calls his stepdad and we sit there and we wait for AAA to rescue us. And in that moment, I realize something incredible and awful. I have no idea what I'm doing. I help people live life for my job and I don't even know how to drive this car right. I don't know anything. I'm 20. There are cars honking and people staring and I don't know what to do. I can't do anything about anything. And there's a sudden peace in that. Sure, I could flag someone down to help me push the beast out of the way, but that wasn't a bright idea. Where would we push it? And I go on and on in my head, and I realize I have no idea what to do for real. Now, before that peace turns into unbridled panic, the engine starts straight up smoking, and my instinct clicks in. Danger, danger, smoke, fire, my brain screams at me. I quickly undo the harnesses, keeping my client's wheelchair strapped in, and I yank down the noisy ramp. And in this moment that we get out, we are static in a group of people in motion. The cacophony of horns and people die off, and John and I stand there and watch the 2001 Dodge Grand Caravan be dragged off by the tow, kicking and screaming. In this moment, I felt a peace I'd never felt before, at least not on the clock. I don't know what to do next. I mean... I somehow broke this man's whole car. There's no coming back from that. And I just had to be fine with it. So I look at John. John looks at me and he says, you know, let's start walking. Because I mean, that's all there was to do. I like that story a lot. I, I was wondering, can you like explain more about how it can actually be peaceful? Um, I mean, peaceful when we fully admit that we don't know what we're doing and we can like kind of know that we don't need to live up to our expectations. Yeah, um, I don't know. I guess there's just kind of a freedom in being completely clueless and helpless. There's not always a freedom in that, but in specific moments, you can kind of close your eyes and think like, there's nothing else I can do. There's nothing I can do to change this. So let me just sit in it, sit in the uncomfortability for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my question is, so I grew up in Marshall where there's parking spots everywhere I go. I mean, it's a town of like 5,000 people. So whenever I see a tow truck now that I'm up here in the cities, I'm like, oh, shoot, did I park in the right spot? Are you okay with these tow trucks or not anymore? I'm working on it. It's something that I've been working on with, you know, my team, and we're going to figure this out. <laughs> Did um, you have to talk to the tow truck driver at all? No, I let, I let John do all the talking. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Nice. Good for, good for him. And how did you get back home eventually? We walked. Oh. Weren't, weren't you, like, in St. Cloud and going back to the cities? No, we, had, we were, like, a couple blocks away. Oh, nice. But it was, like, 95 degrees that day, and I was carrying, uh, like, a 25-pound bag of dog food. <laughs> <laughs> Better than 95 degrees than the negative something degrees. Right. Here is Hugo and his story called First Generation Student. Is grad school even something I want to do? Will I fit in with the other people in the same field? I don't know if I'll even get accepted into grad school. 
There's a strong needle-like feeling in my gut when thinking about not getting accepted into grad school that keeps me up all night. There's pounding headaches from long nights of no sleep, trying to study for biology and chemistry exams. Especially right now, I'm doing um, chemistry too, and I'm also in microbio. I don't know if keeping it my major is even the best thing for me. Will biology be enough for me to get a job later on in life that I'll actually enjoy? Will I continue to feel excluded being a brown student in a predominantly white school? Will being a minority affect how people perceive me in the medical field? I don't know if I will be as great of a parent as my mom and dad. My mom and dad are people I look up to since I was, you know, as long as I can remember. My parents fled their home um, in Guatemala to give me a better life here in the United States. They were both born in villages and just knew um, to work all their life. They've been working since uh, they were probably about five years old. They just kind of had to sustain that life for their family. They left everything they knew in search of a better, something better for their children. In Guatemala, there's beautiful colored houses that are like a box of crayons with a multitude of colors displayed on them. The streets are put together with stones, perfectly like a complete puzzle. And there's volcanoes and mountains that look like they're reaching up to touch the clouds, watching over everything. The same beautiful place, blood is shed every day due to corruption. I don't know if I'll live up to the greatness they hope for me to achieve. That the sacrifices they made for me will even be worth it. My mother always told me growing up that I had the world in my hands. That I had the ability to reach any dreams my mind could think of. Sometimes I sit on my bed uh, with brown covers that are super fluffy that I bought at Target. And I think about my mom and dad. Why was I given the opportunity to learn and grow up in the United States? The moon, the moon shines through our broken dorm window, and I see tears being shimmered on my face. The tears streamed down my cheeks, knowing the pain my parents went through to give me the life I have now. Did my parents not deserve the same opportunities as everyone else? So you mentioned grad school, but you also mentioned medicine. What's the vibe? Yeah, so when I first came to Bethel, I wanted to be a chiropractor, but then I just kind of switched up to physician assistant. So, yeah, PA. Cool. I hear they make a lot of money. Yeah, they make... That was a pretty big (laughs) reason why I chose PA, and I just kind of like being in the medical field, so... And I like biology, so I just, you know, kind of put those two together. Awesome. Yeah, is it more like a passion for helping other people, or is it kind of like, I want to make a lot of money because I mean that's not a bad reason (laughs) right um I would say it's kind of the best of both worlds I'm a pretty big people person so I really wanted to have like the interaction with people and my mom is a CNA and my sister works somewhere in the um, emergency room (laughs) I really don't know what she does but um I just kind of grew up with that around me so it just kind of pushed me towards that way so definitely um I wanted to ask too um it sounds like you appreciate and um, feel like you owe your parents some sort of debt for all they've done. Is there anything you could ever do to make you feel satisfied? Like, do you ever feel like you're always trying to do stuff, but, you know, it'll never, it could never repay what they've done? Right. Um, you know, it's really hard. So none of my, my parents didn't graduate from like high school. The farthest they got was like middle school. And my sisters both graduated high school and that was huge. So then when I saw that, you know, I was really proud of them, but they didn't go to college and they just kind of were comfortable where they were at. But every time we would go through a struggle, I kind of promised my parents, like, you know, I'll be that one. Like, I'll repay everything you guys did. Like, there was times where we couldn't eat because, you know, money wasn't there and there was bills to pay. So I was like, you know, this isn't something that I want for you guys anymore. And they would constantly work like 17 hour shifts all the time and just kind of have double jobs. So I feel like me coming here, I feel like if I can graduate and 
get as much as I can to pay them back, you know, that would be somewhere where like I would feel comfortable with. Yeah, I love that. Um, sweet. <laughs> uh, here is Caitlin and her story called "Water Balloons in the Park." Leave me alone, you bitch ass cracker. Oh my gosh. Well, that was colorful language for an eight year old. Um, what a fun mission trip. Totally inspiring. The bike he rode was caked in gravel dust and looked rusty enough to, to disintegrate into dirt. But for some reason, he still thought it nice enough to steal from a little girl. I ran. But any chance I had of catching up and retrieving that red bike was. As, about as unstable as my haggard breath. Man, I really need to work out or something. Oh, Jimmy. The staff who oversaw the outdoor, the outdoor day camp shook her head knowingly. She had given up and I can't blame her. Hey, those boys just threw this water balloon at me. Those boys? I craned my neck and glanced where her finger pointed. Oh, yeah. Jimmy and his little posse. I wince as I watch a boy catapult a water balloon at some unsuspecting little kid. Here, the little girl reporting to me handed me the rubbery remnant of the balloon. It was deli colored and, oh, wait, no, 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 no. Is this what I think it is? I darted toward Jimmy and his accomplice, eager to put a stop to their evil schemes. But the little boy, he lifted up his chin with a mischievous grin and just like that, launched a condom filled with water right smack at me. A mangy res dog trotted past me, also drenched, and I realized I was just like him, defeated. I was defeated. There was nothing I could do, nothing I could say that could help me let, that could make those little boys let me in. Their walls were up higher than I could climb. Head ducked, I began picking up the discarded rubber pieces from the grass. This week of service, that actually felt nothing like service, concluded with a community cookout. Men stood flipping burgers by the grill as smoke-heavy clouds ascended upwards. Grandma Gloria, who graciously taught us to make fried bread earlier in the week, sat at the table engaged in conversation. I sat at a stool, entertaining some kids with a five-string ukulele. All was peaceful, and without warning, Jimmy spawned out of nowhere like a miniature Houdini. Hey, can I play with that? His hands didn't wait for me to answer. They grabbed the instrument. I didn't object. His music was horrendous, but his smile, it was genuine, toothy and dorky. I paused, debating. I can teach you some chords, I offered. His eyes squinted at me momentarily. He handed me the ukulele. I modeled the chords with my hands and coached him as he attempted to follow suit. Finally, a discernible G chord tumbled from the strings. Show me another one, he said. So this short-term missions trip, did it, um, did Jimmy really discourage you from further trips or encourage you? Um, I mean, I haven't gone on one since, but he definitely didn't discourage me. Rather, it was, you know, at the end, I was so glad I had the opportunity to meet him. Because, you know, it wasn't like, you know, like people like you know, we, we go to a Christian ver university. We know how it is. People like will advertise pictures of mission trips and you're with little kids. You're holding babies at orphanages and 
that's not always going to be how it is because that's not the world. That's what not what the world is like. And you're interacting with real people. Um, yeah, and it's not just about like going and helping them because you know you're there on their you're there on their land, and so you need to just go and say, hey, if you want me to do something, what would you like me to do? And just be there to listen instead of go in and decide. I'm gonna fix this, you know. That's a really good attitude to have. I feel like. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, kind of what I discovered. <laughs> and how do you think that um, after being at that mission trip, how do you think that affected your life moving forward? Um, hmm. It taught me that, like I said, I, I really need to listen to other people um, to be able to do things for them. It's because I, I am definitely a type A personality control freak. I look at situations, I analyze them. I'm like, this, this is what it needs. But, you know, you can't always do that. You need to be there and just live with people for a little bit and let them play your ukulele. And learn that uh, condoms can be water balloons. They can. I was, <laughs> it was honestly really funny. It was just kind of the initial shock of it that really got me. But, you know. So, what have we learned today? We've learned that uh, the oil light in a car is not a reference to the Disney flick Aladdin. It's not, but I would prefer to call it the genie, the genie lamp from now on. I'm sticking with I learned that the water balloon is a condom. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm sticking <Yeah>. with that one. <laughs> um, what have I learned? Uh, well, I learned lots of things. Um, That's good. I, I can't. My brain isn't Sit working right now. It's Sit in my own inadequacy. I, it's okay to be imperfect. It's okay to not meet the expectations you have for yourself or for others. Bam. It's okay to be comfortable in your own uncomfortability. Yeah. We want to thank some people for helping us out at the Modern Story Podcast at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks to Professor Chris Schaffner and his teaching assistants for maintaining the podcast studio and giving us access to it. And thanks to the writers such as Aaron Barker, who inspired our stories. And we should also thank each other for our own edits. Thank you. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) And thanks to Professor Susan Brooks and Scott Winter for sharing their storytelling skills with us because that helps a ton. Yeah. And thank you for rounding off our season with us. We hope you've enjoyed the Modern Story Podcast, as we sure have. And lastly, go tell your butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker about Modern Story. Peace out. <laughs>